Welcome to episode 11 of Untangled Faith. This metaphor of the stage and the theater, you know, and the play is a helpful framework to be able to view any kind of social situation, but it's also a helpful framework to view our own capacity for self-deception where the institution or the individual basically becomes their own performance. So they become both the actor and the audience. And so they want to believe a narrative that they've told themselves for some time. And they then engage in this language, in this act, in this play as a way of hiding the reality of the backstage and the secrets and the cover-ups. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. In the trailer for this series, I told you that these episodes would serve as a spiritual abuse recovery primer. I wanted to give you a survey of my process and what I learned and what helped when we left our church and Nathan's job at Ramsey Solutions. We did this all within less than a two-year period. In episode nine, I mentioned the work of Wade Mullen. It's impossible for me to overstate the impact his work has had on me. One of the first things I read from him was an article he wrote entitled, Cubicles of Charm, Crucibles of Condemnation. The first paragraph reads like this. The spiritual abusive organization becomes like a machine that views its people as objects to be separated into cubicles of charm or crucibles of condemnation based upon their willingness to unconditionally comply with the demands of the organization. Filling the cubicles of charm are flattering messages, favors, and grandiose statements that tell supporters they are models for others, special, the greatest group to lead, and the reason for the group's success. Later on, he wrote, In the spiritually abusive organization, excessive charm quickly becomes excessive condemnation the moment loyalty is betrayed. Wade's work often made me wonder if he had a camera set up outside somewhere documenting my life. He clearly and powerfully points out the language of abuse. Last year, he published his first book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. I've lost track of the number of people I've recommended it to. I had the good fortune of meeting him briefly in November of 2019. And just a couple of weeks ago, he agreed to come on this podcast. It is with so much excitement that I introduce you to Wade Mullen today. At the end of this episode, I have a special announcement that I share, so be sure to listen through all the way to the end. What made you interested in impression management and evangelical spaces? You could give us a little bit of your story. Yeah, you know, I was going through a really difficult time at a church that I was on staff at outside of Philadelphia. Uh, you know, I was there for about seven to eight years, and during the last two years of my time there, I just went through a very painful crisis. Multiple people had been harmed and were being harmed. I didn't really know the extent of it until, you know, some of their stories started being told. I discovered that there were some uh, in positions of power and authority, not just at the church, but also outside the church. Sometimes systems kind of link together to, to support each other and discovered that there were people who were more interested in protecting the image of the church than in protecting people who had been harmed and might be harmed in the future. And that 
that really pained me. And it, it brought my wife and I to a difficult point where we decided we could no longer be at the church one day longer and still maintain our own integrity. And so we made the painful decision to leave you know, people we had come to love and a secure job and a home that was owned by the church. So we just went through this very painful time. At the same time, I was going through a PhD program and had to decide you know, what I was going to focus my research efforts on. I decided to just dig into the whole field of crisis management and crisis response because I was seeing how a failed response to a crisis was causing additional harm and even worse harm. For my wife and I, you know, we've always said that the time that we were at the church was very difficult and painful the last couple of years that we were there. But the period of time after we left and seeing how leadership and certain people at the church were responding to our departure was the most painful. And so I was just seeing how a mismanaged crisis adds to the pain of those who are already in a place of suffering and wanted to see if I could contribute to our understanding of how evangelical organizations respond to a crisis. And then perhaps with that understanding, we could respond in ways that are more helpful and respond in ways where truth is really dictating what happens and concern for other people. As I got into the crisis literature, I discovered this subset called impression management. So there's different types of crises, and one type of crisis is a scandal or an image-threatening event. I wanted to see how organizations, specifically Christian organizations, were using what are called impression management strategies in the wake of or in the aftermath of an image-threatening event or a scandal. And so as I got into that, my eyes were open to this these tactics that were being used in interchangeable ways depending on the situation and depending on the audience. A light bulb moment for me was when I realized the same tactics that organizations were using to cover up bad behavior, to in some cases cover up a crime. Those same tactics were similar and in some ways identical to the tactics that I had observed and experienced abusers using, individual abusers, and then also discovered that this is a language, so to speak, that evil is engaging in evil itself. I was beginning to see this pattern emerge in the research that correlated also with my own experience. And then I started sharing some of these tactics online and, you know, wrote the book, discovered too that this was resonating with others who had gone through similar experiences and seeing that there is almost this playbook that people who are intent on destroying beauty, on trapping other people, getting their own way, on abusing people. There's this playbook that they seem to be following. While I'm editing, I get the opportunity to listen to these conversations over and over again while I make them just right for the listener. And in this case, as I was listening to Wade's story, the full weight of his experience fell on me. Nathan and I can relate to every single point he mentioned from finally seeing and hearing things that weren't right, bringing it up and realizing we had to leave to being especially hurt by the way we were treated in the aftermath. I would describe sort of what you do there, what you have done with your dissertation as a postmortem on some of these organizations, I guess, mortem 
would refer to the fact that some of them have failed or or gone away. But I don't know if you have tuned into Mike Cosper's The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And the first episode of that is Who Killed Mars Hill? I think it's going to be a similar sort of postmortem. You get to be sort of an anthropologist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I haven't listened to that first episode. I want to, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, listening to that series because Mars Hill was one of the cases uh, in my dissertation that I looked at. Is it all always wrong for a company or an organization to want to protect their image. I think that would be my first gut response to something would be to want to protect myself. Where's that line between healthy and unhealthy? Yeah, I mean, and that's a good question because there is this line between what is ethical and what is unethical. You know, I think we experience this in our everyday lives as well, where we're going throughout our day and we're in some ways managing the impressions others are forming of us. We're protecting ourselves in certain ways that might be socially acceptable or necessary. So sometimes, for example, it's ethical and right to keep certain information secret or confidential. The difference for me is when the impression management is based on deception. So the reputation that is gained is gained through deception. And then also if that reputation, if that protection of that reputation and the image management is for the institution's own benefit to the detriment of others, where the tactics that are being used are inherently deceptive and because of that deception, it's causing harm to other people, sometimes in ways they don't realize, then to me, that institution is engaging in an unethical form of impression management. Do you think that most places know that that's what they're doing? I don't know. That's one of the most common questions that I get. And, you know, there has been some, you know, research on that, trying to determine how conscious is an individual or organization when they're using impression management. How aware are they? How calculated is it? And my thinking right now on that is that I I believe that there's at least some awareness that there's a backstage version, things behind the curtain that they don't want the audience to see. And so they make a decision to act in ways that might prevent the audience from gaining access to information that they don't want them to have. Right. That script that they employ, though, when they're on the front stage before the audience becomes second nature, so to speak, over time so that they learn what works and what doesn't work. And it becomes habituated so that in the end, they're engaging in these tactics. And I don't think they're necessarily aware of all the different tactics that they're using, not even necessarily aware that the language they are speaking is the language of deception. What this gets at is this phenomenon of self-deception that's at work at the same time. That uh, metaphor of the stage is a helpful framework, you know, that Goffman presented in his book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. This metaphor of the stage and the theater play is a helpful framework to be able to view any kind of social situation, but it's also a helpful framework to view our own capacity for self-deception where the institution or the individual basically becomes their own performance. They become both the actor and the audience. And so they want to believe a narrative that they've told themselves for some time. They then engage in this language, in this act, in this play as a way of hiding the reality of the backstage and the secrets and the cover-ups and the, and the harm that they've done to other people as a way of hiding that from themselves. There's a continuum where they become point of saying, hey, we need to hide this. 
and they become aware of the specific strategies that they're using to do that. And then over time, they just become better and better at doing that until they're kind of lost in that language. They're lost in their own play. I would love for you to tell us what are those red flags that we are involved or connected with some sort of community that is abusive and is using these impression management techniques? It's a great question because the purpose of the organization who is trying to deceive and control is to keep its followers and constituents from seeing the dynamics of that exploitation. The question, you know, what are the, what are these red flags? Because they're there, but they're often in the shadows. You can't see them. It's, it's a critical question. And I think one of the initial red flags that I've seen is the way in which an organization and its leaders present themselves to other people. And what I have seen is that there's, there tends to be this, this narcissism, this self-promotion, this exaggeration of their own success. Leaders inflate their credentials or say that they have credentials that they don't have. They exaggerate the numbers of people who are attending their church service. So there's this self-promotion that has a deception attached to it. And then also, I think along with that, then there's this promotion of other people, this charm, this need to make people feel as if they're special and unique, not for their own encouragement and affirmation, but in order to control them. Because what they learn is that people will be more likely to follow us and give us money and do what we ask them to do if we can make them feel good about themselves. If they connect that feeling of specialness and this feeling of being valued to us and the things that we've done for them, then maybe that will create this dependency and credit all of this to us. So it's just a means of control. So I think those are some red flags. And then on the kind of other side of that coin is what happens when that self-promotion is challenged? What happens when people offer a counter vision of the organization? What happens when they correct exaggerated numbers? What happens when they when they call attention to problems? How does the institution respond to that? Do they see that information as a threat? You know, what happens when somebody leaves the institution and they have a story of harm? They have a story of being discriminated against. They have a story of being abused. Well, how does the institution respond to that story? Do they see it as a threat or do they see it as an opportunity to learn? Um, what happens when people don't return the favors that they've been given? What happens when they're not, quote unquote, loyal? What happens when they dissent in a meeting? Wade's list of red flags should be on a bingo card. If they were, based on our experience with Ramsey, I'm pretty sure we could black out the entire card. Narcissism, exaggeration of success, charm, what happens when people challenge their narrative, all of the things that he mentioned. So how do they respond to those who are offering a different definition than the one they have presented to the audience? So those are all key red flags. And then I would say, you know, one of the most important red flags is how fear and intimidation is seeping into the climate. So you can have within an organization this climate of flattery and charm and everyone, you know, using such nice language toward each other, especially in a public setting or in front of an audience. But then at the same time, behind the scenes or in closed door meetings, there's coercion, there's intimidation, there's threats. And so there's fear that's seeping into the climate. And people realize that if they don't stay in line, if they don't go along, 
then some kind of harm is going to come to them. They could lose their job. They could they could be blamed for something they didn't do. They could be targeted in some way. And so I encourage people to listen to that fear because that fear might be telling you something about the environment and that environment is removing from you your ability to choose for yourself, your ability to speak your own mind, your ability to stand up for what you think is right and best. And so the abusive organization, just like the abusive individual, is going to strip from you your agency, your power, your understanding of what is true to create this environment where you feel both captive and confused. I think those are the the ingredients of a traumatic experience. Those are the ingredients of a toxic, abusive environment. But it's basically looking for the ways in which the organization is using deception to maintain control. Fear-based cultures. This is a wildly waving red flag. Are you a part of a place that causes you to be fearful if you step out of line? When I had heard back from you that we were going to be able to talk, I texted religion news journalist Bob Smetana, and he said, ask him, why do you think it's so hard for these leaders to acknowledge wrongdoing or apologize? And those questions of like, why does somebody do something? Yes, it's cause for speculation, right? So if we were in a courtroom, we would get an objection to this question. The preoccupation that somebody in a position of power has toward their own success and toward their own need for control and power and a confession or an acknowledgement of failure, accepting responsibility for that failure, the harm that uh, it has caused other people would threaten that sense of success, perhaps threaten their then control and their power. And so the apology is too threatening to them. You know, it might threaten, you know, their need to, to lay claim to the things that they have uh, accomplished, or, you know, the things that they have now, their money, their material possessions, but it may also threaten their own identity It might threaten their own reputation. It might threaten their own view of themselves. So again, perhaps they've gotten lost in their own act and their own performance, and they are very self-deceived. They can't apologize, not only because it might threaten what they've achieved, what they've accomplished, what they've accumulated, but it also might threaten their own view of themselves. I think some of it may be the higher profile faith community leaders have built platforms often on who they are and and doing the right thing and have monetized entire systems of showing other people i we have figured out how to do this like in regards to ramsey solutions they have an entree leadership summit and they want they like teach people how to run businesses so to acknowledge that they messed up means that they may have made a lot of money off of teaching people some things that might not be right. And I think of the same thing as sort of with Willow Creek's Global Leadership Summit with Bill Hybels is they were teaching leaders in the world and churches how to do this right. Both of these places experience image-threatening events, and they have made money off of their image of doing the right thing and teaching others how to replicate them. I mean, that's a great point. You know, they they become a model to others. That model is based on their clean record. So if they apologize for something, if they admit to something, perhaps they might not be seen as a model 
anymore. There is something in the literature called threat amplification that says that the higher the reputation of the organization, the longer their reach, the more amplified any threat is going to appear to them and the more motivated then they'll be to use impression management tactics. Mm. And so they become too big to fail and that drives their need to use these tactics and to avoid any kind of truth telling and confession and apology. Then I also think there's something to the history of the organization that prevents them from making a first time apology or confession because they know perhaps that there's a long history of abuse. There's a long history of pain. And if they make a confession here 30 years later for the first time, then that might then open the door to all of the other things that they need to apologize for but never have. And so there's just this whole closet full of skeletons and they're concerned that if they open this door here, then everything else will be exposed. And you probably have lawyers involved in some of these places saying, or insurance companies saying, there's liability involved in the specific words you say, specifically if you're saying we were wrong. Yeah, I know for a fact that lawyers are, in some cases, I'm not going to you know, say that all lawyers are, are giving this kind of advice, but I, I have spoken to leaders of churches who have said our board is very hesitant to offer an apology because they're concerned about a lawsuit and they're they're getting that advice from a lawyer on their board or a lawyer that they've retained. So they might then come out with a statement that falls just short of admitting responsibility for an injury that somebody else or other people have have, have suffered to keep them from facing the threat of liability. And, you know, I've had, you know, one person just ask me, I don't think we're going to be able to do what you're recommending because we have a couple million dollars in reserves and the leadership really thinks that it would be negligent to say this and risk that reserve. My response to that is you're putting money in front of people. You're putting money before God. There are consequences to your behavior. This may be one of the consequences. What you're really saying is we're concerned that we might face justice. And maybe that's the right thing is for somebody to receive generous restitution for what they've suffered at your hands. If you get the opportunity to be a part of that good thing in another person's life. I hear Wade's vision of how a place or a person can fully own how they have hurt others. And it sounds like an impossible dream, but I refuse to give up on praying for it. And see that as an opportunity to make amends and to be a part of something good that you haven't been a part of yet. It's just a very, very distorted way of thinking that I think has created a stronghold in a lot of our churches. And they're hearing legal counsel saying, don't go that far. You know, And I think it's tragic. So how can we be a part of helping create healthy and safe communities? I think connecting with other experts, support communities, I think Twitter is a great thing for that reason right now, where there's a lot that I've learned over the years since I've joined. And I think that education, that awareness, it helps inform our ability to make sense of our environment, our ability to make sense of the threat of an abusive leader, or the threat of a perpetrator. That It helps us to see these red flags because we're, we're because of that education. And then once we're able to see it, then we can name it. We can say, you know, that's abuse, or we can say that's grooming behavior. 
And when you can name something, then I believe you have some sense of power over that. And you can then bring it to the table. You can bring it into the light in a way that other people who perhaps have authority over that individual or can step in and intervene can then do something with that information. I think that's one of the most important ways that we can contribute to a safer community is just engaging in ongoing learning about what it requires for a community to truly be safe and to understand the dangers that threaten that safety. Also, there are ways in which we can support those who have been harmed. There are ways in which we can help individuals who have been harmed find uh, supportive relationships, connecting them to experts, connecting them to therapists, connecting them to the things that they've been disconnected from, hearing them, listening to them, believing them, helping them find their own agency again. So there's ways in which we can do that, even though we may not be the expert or the professional, we can be part of that supportive community. And then I also think there's ways in which we can take action perhaps do that together, take some collective action, Mm -hmm. and think through ethical ways to do that. So you can determine, okay, as long as I'm a part of this organization, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to the mistreatment of my colleagues. And here's what that means for me. Mm -hmm. And when I become aware of this, then I'm going to follow the steps that I know are in place to be able to report a violation, you know, a mistreatment of somebody. I'm going to follow those steps and I'm going to inform myself now so that when I have that opportunity to advocate for somebody else, I know what those steps are. And I'm also going to educate myself so that I know even what the rules are, what the policies are, what state laws might be at play here. If I exhaust all my internal efforts, I can then appeal to a state agency or a federal agency or group over here. So you just develop your own action plan for how you're going to advocate for somebody. And I guess having that in place early on means you don't have to think about that later when you are in the middle of something. So that that, it takes sort of the emotion out of that. Some of us will find ourselves connected to someplace, an organization we love, or a church, or a speaker, preacher, somebody we benefit from in some way. And somebody has said something or gives some sort of account of pain that they have experienced at the hand of that individual or place or some sort of abusive behavior. What do we do then as a bystander that maybe hasn't experienced anything negative? The question of, you know, what what do I do when it comes to abuse is a very situational. The, the answer has to be highly contextualized. Abuse can take so many different forms. I think there are some principles that can apply just about in any situation, though. And I think one of the principles is to stop and pause and make sense of what you are hearing. And I think there's some wisdom behind that of asking the question, what do I need to understand that perhaps I don't understand? Who do I need to talk to? perhaps that can help shed light on my understanding. There could be an expert in whatever the situation is that can help you understand what you're hearing. So it's pausing and trying to arrive at an accurate understanding of what you're hearing. And then I think another principle is to check your own motives and check your own emotional state because 
It's easy for us to excuse our own inaction and remain indifferent or keep the other person and their story at an arm's length by saying, none of my business, you know, wouldn't it be right for me to get involved? What we're really doing is we're denying the injustice. And I think it's important for us to allow ourselves to face the injustice, to face the assault on beauty and to become angry about that, righteously angry about that. And to be sad about it and to sit in that pain that you've just encountered. Because good advocacy needs to be driven by strong, regulated emotion. It needs to be driven by empathy. It needs to be driven by a concern for other people who might also be harmed. It needs to be driven by a love for the person who has been harmed. It needs to be driven by a concern for the person who is inflicting harm on other people. That is something that has to be guarded, I think. By the way, I would say too that if you're a bystander, I think you need your own assistance. You need your own therapy. You need your own person who's able to guide you as you take those steps. We've been the bystanders that finally chose to speak up. And Wade isn't exaggerating when he issues a warning about the cost or how important it is to have support. In our situation with Ramsey, our church supported us, but we have friends who lost their church because their pastor chose Dave over them. Kind of create these structures for yourself that will allow you to advocate well, to advocate in an ethical way, and to advocate in a way that will help you preserve your own health. And then you need to you need to come up with a game plan. You need to decide what action steps you're going to take in order to help shine light on this. And so that that obviously then has to be highly contextualized depending on what the situation is. I had so many things to talk about with Wade that I have split our conversation into two episodes. Next week, we keep talking, and I ask him to do some impression management analysis on the Ramsey Solutions response to the Religion News Service request for comment in their article that came out in January of this year. I promise you want to hear what he had to say. Thanks for listening to this episode of Untangled Faith. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for me is to share it with a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find transcripts and show notes at the untangledfaithpodcast.com site. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. I send that out weekly and share bonus info we don't get to here. And as an added incentive, I'll be giving away copies of Wade's book to two people chosen at random for my newsletter list. The deadline for this is the end of this month, July 31st, 2021. So go sign up at untangledfaithpodcast.com. Have a great week, and I will see you next Wednesday. On the next episode of Untangled Faith. But then the flip side of that is blasting those who might threaten that. So blasting those who might bring a shadow where we're used to basking in the sunlight and the glory of all of this. The response then is to blast that person as a way of removing the negative associations that that person is bringing into the picture. The bystanders shouldn't have to be fighting to expose these dark secrets. Who do they tell? Who do they not tell? They shouldn't have to be working through all of that if the abusive individual or the organization was trustworthy, was uh, operating with transparency and honesty.